Let's face it, we all do or say things from time to time that are wrong. We make mistakes, and sometimes we intentionally do harm. We used to call that sin, but these days we don't hear about sin too much. Would you ever tell someone that something they did was a sin? But God is serious about the problem of sin, even if we do succeed in minimizing its meaning and effect. Today on Craving Answers, Craving God, the topic is sin. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. You can always find our episodes on our website. The address is cacg.stjamesglencarbon.org. Aaron, do you think there is a difference between the way the world uses the word sin as opposed to the way Christians use the word? I don't think there's too much of a difference between the way that the church and non-church people use the word sin, but I do think there's a major difference in what causes that word. Like what, So the, the, there's a major difference in the object of those words or the referent of those words. Um, sin is a violation of some larger moral code and definitely people it depends on what your moral what you call sin depends upon what your moral code is and so i mean you can google um political sins and find lots of articles about the political sins that such and such politicians commit we have relational sins that you can commit and there's diet sins there are certain desserts that we actually call sin because they're violating the code that you know whatever it is that you know, particular aspects of our culture worship. If we worship power, then you can commit sins against power. If you worship health and beauty and uh, fitness, you can commit sins against that. Um, Christians believe that sins are a violation of the one true God, the ultimate good um, God. And so when he is violated, we call that sin. That being said, um, while I do think that the non, that non-Christians and Christians use the word sin, sin in a similar sense, because the word sin has such a religious connotation, lots of times that word is reserved. It's not. It's not. It's it's so loaded with Christianity that uh, with Christian uh, Christian vibes that people tend to avoid using the word sin. But when they do use it, you know, when they say I had chocolate sin for dessert or, you know, such and such a politician committed a grave sin by going against his constituency, promised to to do X, Y, or Z, and then he refused to do it. That's a political sin. They'll, they'll pull the word out for that sort of like deity being violated, but um, it's, it's largely a religious word. If we find out that uh, one of our friends is having a, a marital difficulty, the husband uh, has a girlfriend. I can't think of anybody who says, well, he sinned against his wife. They'll say he cheated against his wife. We have lots of words to describe these acts that violate the moral code, but we don't say, yeah, I got a ticket the other day. I sinned against the speed limit. We don't talk like that. It's just, 
I was trying to think of an example where outside of the religious context, the Bible study conversation or the sermon, where we where we use sin in everyday speech, I can't think of any. Yeah, it's not everyday speech. Um, and and I, too, it also sometimes it's it's used ironically, like when you name a dessert sin. Yeah, it's used a little bit ironically. But the notion behind it is is that you're violating the the great God of health and beauty and fitness. Um, yeah, you're right. People don't like to use the word sin. So especially when you talk about um, sexual sin, if you talk about a guy cheating on his wife, um. You know, I, I, everybody agrees. I, I think that, well, I say everybody, when I say everybody, I mean 96% of the people agree that it's wrong to cheat on your spouse. But what they don't, you, 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 they're not going to want to use the word sin because it's getting awfully close. When you start talking about sexuality, uh, you know, the great belief in our culture about sexuality is that it's everybody's own business. Everybody gets to do whatever they want. The only rule is consent. You have to get consent from your sexual partner. That's the only rule. So it's hard to call adultery sin because usually it involves mutual consent on the part of the cheater and then the person that the the, the cheater's cheating with. However, the person who's getting cheated against, they don't have consent. And so it's kind of a, in, in just I'm th- thinking in sort of the moral terms of our culture, it's kind of muddy water there. It's it's not fair to them, uh, it's not right to them, but also you don't want to get yourself in a position in our culture where you're saying that if somebody cheats on their spouse, that they're really doing wrong. Because what if it's something that's re- they're really their heart really wants, or what if it's something that's a really good situation? And um, I still think most people would call it wrong, but you're right, using the word sin, that's not a word that they'll typically use for that because it's getting close to passing moral judgment. You will stick with words like it's unfair or it's damaging. Uh, You know, we'll describe the effects. But before an almighty God, is it wrong? No. That's going too far, our culture would say. Whereas for Christians, we would say, no, God has a right to tell us who who we can and who we can't have sex with. And so we do call it sin. And the reason I ask the question is because we know that we have people who listen to our podcast who are Christians, various denominations and stripes, but they're Christians. And then we also have people who don't necessarily identify as Christian. Maybe they have that in their background, right. but they're, they don't identify as Christians. So I'm trying to figure out how we can have a conversation today which addresses both groups. Because if we specifically talked about sin in our everyday religious context, we could just leave the people who don't and, and excuse me identify as Christians just leave them in the dust, or we could talk to those people, and the religious or the Christian people might say, "Well, this isn't very helpful." Right. I mean, we know all this. Why are they going over that? So, how do we address that? How do we talk to both groups? Well, so, I mean, one of the things that, that helps us, that's an unfortunate way to say it in this circumstance, but one of the things that might help is that, I mean, Christian people commit adultery too. Christian people lie too. Christian people steal as well. And um, I, I think to, to circle back and ask, so one of the things we can do is we can ask the, the person who is struggling to, to think, how do I think about somebody else's adultery? How do I think about that? Like, how am I going to, is that right or wrong? 
I, I think that it, to circle back to that and to say to them, well, look, the reason why you're struggling is because you have two separate values. One is deep down inside, you know it's wrong to cheat. You know it's wrong to, ste- to steal somebody else's spouse from them. But also, you have a conflicting uh, value as well, and that is everybody should get to choose what they want for themselves. Everybody needs to follow their own heart and to do what makes them happy. I mean, we tell our kids, we, we make our kids watch Disney movies when they're little that affirm this very value is that there are rules in the world, but those rules are there to be broken. And not until you break those rules, I mean, this is the entire theme of The Little Mermaid or Aladdin, not until you break those rules will you actually be fulfilled and happy. Well, we teach ourselves that. We teach all of us that. And then you, you have a question about adultery, and you can see the damage it's doing to an abandoned spouse. And you know it's wrong. You see that, and you know that this has done an intense amount of damage. But on the other hand, you have all this baggage in your head from our culture which says, hey, People have to choose what they want. If somebody does is not, if they're not happy with their spouse anymore and their heart tells them, hey, go over here, there's somebody else that can make you happy. Like, who are we to say that that's wrong? And to say that there's a disjunct there and you can't, you can't live, and it's not just adultery, it's all of our lives. We can't possibly live with those two things being the same case. I think I mentioned this uh, last episode or two episodes ago. We have two. We have two strong beliefs in our culture that are mutually exclusive. One is that there are certain things that are absolutely and universally wrong. Racism is one of these things. Sexual assault is one of these things. But we also have another belief, the one I've just been talking about, that all human beings have a right to choose for themselves what their own goals should be, what their own morality should be, what their own sense of right or wrong should be their own belief system, everybody has a right, their behavior, everybody has a right to choose that for themselves. Well, just like you put those things on the table in front of you, you can see that they just don't go together. You can't say that thing, you can't say that adultery is universally wrong and at the same time say that people should have a right to choose. And I think that one of the things we can do is to help both Christians and non-Christians see that if all of us have the right to choose to do exactly what we want and to follow our own hearts, we are going to damage so many other people, and so that can't possibly be right. And when we start th- when we start talking about things that can't possibly be right, we find ourselves talking about what the Bible calls sin. I think one area of common ground for Christians on one side of the question and non-Christians on the other side of the question is we're both pretty heavily invested in minimizing. So if you want to talk about sin in the Christian context— from a biblical point of view, we Christians are pretty good at minimizing the power and the meaning of sin so as to invariably justify ourselves. So if you say, well, Chuck, what you're doing is sinful, I, I will say, well, I don't think so, Pastor, and here's why. And we can do that in a Christian context. Same thing on the other side of the ledger. People are doing things that... The Bible might describe as sin, but these people don't think it's sin at all. They are completely satisfied that uh, what they're doing serves them well, as you pointed out, in their own choices, not sin at all. So we have in common the determination to minimize it. Yeah. Where does that put us in the question of understanding what sin is? 
in its broadest sense is. Yeah. Because some of us have min- minimized it sure. to the point where it doesn't, it's not even sin anymore. Yeah. Well, that's a good, I, that, I think that's a good pointer to this reality that I think it's clear that none of us should have the right to decide what is or isn't sin. No, no individual, because I think what you're saying is absolutely true. We all, all human beings seem to have this inbuilt tendency to minimize the damage that, that, that so I tend to minimize the damage that I do. You tend to minimize the damage that you do. It's easy for me to see, you know, the things that you do bad. And it's easy for you to see the things that I do bad. It's very hard to see, for us to see the things that ourselves we do bad, which seems to indicate that there's something about humans that is not objective, that there's something about us that doesn't see ourselves as clearly as we should, which means I think that the whole notion that we should have the right to decide what's right or wrong for ourselves is completely misguided. We, we've proven that we don't even have the ability to see our own behavior correctly. So that means that we're going to need some sort of outside source to decide what's right or wrong if we're going to have a genuine ethic, a genuine morality. I think this is clear, which means that I mean we're going to have to decide what's the standard, who decides. It can't be me. It can't be you. It's got to be somebody else that's bigger than me or you. And I, I really don't know what else to call that except for God. In 1 John 3, verse 4, John says, quote, sin is lawlessness, unquote. Right. Three simple words. Does that simple definition answer the question for us? Sin is lawlessness. I think that's a great place to start, that sin is, you know, breaking the law, God's law, you know, in the case of our culture, whatever laws are written or unwritten that our culture has. Uh, so sin is breaking the law. Uh, that's a great starting spot. It's not everything that, that we can say about sin. I mean, one of, the pro- one of the issues that we have in the Christian New Testament is that there, and this is touches on something you just said a few minutes ago, Chuck, about Christian hypocrisy, is that there's a lot of really, really religious people who obey God's law completely in the New Testament. Uh, there are the Pharisees. Um, and yet Jesus insists that they're dead in their trespasses and sin, even though they keep the law completely. So it has to be something more than just, are you keeping the rules or not? It's possible to keep the rules but, but to be doing it in a way, I, I realize we've transitioned here to just assuming that um, God has a right, if he exists, God has a right to decide what's sin and what's not sin. Uh, I, I'm assuming that. Uh, I would encourage our listeners to assume that as well, even if just as a thought experiment for the next few minutes to see if we can make any sense of human morality. If God has a right to decide what's sin and what's not sin, then uh, keeping the law is a good a good place to start, but it doesn't appear to be enough because it appears in the in the Bible that it's possible to do everything right and still be sinning. You had a twinkle in your eye when you said that, but it's not enough. As if you had a now, maybe I misread your uh, body language. The twinkle, <laughs> yeah. As if there was more to the deal based on what you just said, um, that maybe we should explore. Yeah, I, I do think. Well, so if sin can't be boiled down to just simply, I mean, it is breaking God's law. But if it's more than that, if, there, if, there's, if, that's not, if it's not as easy as like, well, let me just get the Ten Commandments and obey them, then there has to be something else 
more than that, it's true. I, I don't know about the twinkle in my eye. This is not an enjoyable conversation talking about sin. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I feel a lot of guilt for, as I talk about specific sins that I've committed in the past, I, I still grapple a lot with shame, feelings of shame and feelings of guilt. But, but I do, I think that, that that is correct, that there's more to it than that. I, th- I do think, I, I think the best way to think about sin is in terms of um, idolatry, in terms of, you know, what, what are we doing? What are we doing that doesn't value God? Anything that we do that doesn't value God Oh, uh, let me say it this way. That doesn't value God as the highest good. Anything we do that doesn't fear, love, or trust in God above all things, to, to borrow a phrase from Luther, is going to be sin, even if it's good stuff. Paul, very cryptically in Romans uh, chapter 11, says that he testifies about the Judeans um, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And so they they have a passion for God, but they're still stuck in their sin, he says, because God is, has not been for them the highest good. And sometimes for Christians, this is the case, is that God isn't the highest good. We worship God, but we worship God in order to get money or physical health or even, you know, to go to heaven someday, uh, to, you know, to, to have, you know, to, to, not, to not go to hell someday. And um, what we're doing is we're using God as a stepping stone to something else that's bigger than God. We've talked about this before. I think that's actually a better definition of sin. Anytime that we fear, love, and trust in something else besides God, even if we're not breaking a specific commandment, then we're sinning. So I'll I'll give you an example. Um, Kindness. Uh, Kindness towards somebody else. There's two ways that you can be kind towards somebody else. You can do it in the name of Jesus. You can do it because you value that other person more than yourself, in which case it would be uh, good. You can do it, though, because it makes you feel better about yourself. You can do it in order to manipulate them because you think, I might need something out of them at some future date, and so I'm going to be kind to them now to start putting money into that, that, that account that I can withdraw later. And we would say that that would be sin because you're not actually valuing them. You're valuing yourself. You're fearing, loving, and trusting yourself more than you are fearing and loving and trusting in God. And so, so although you're doing the right thing, and that's good. It's better than doing the wrong thing. So, you know, doing something kind for somebody is better than punching them in the face. So it's possible to do something that is public, that people can see and witness, that looks magnanimous, that looks superlative and be sinning? Sure, yeah. Do something private, what, what too. What do you mean, sure, yeah? We look at, we somebody says, well, I donated a million dollars to the city so that they could build this youth center or something like yes. that. And everybody goes, wow, we should put a statue up to that guy. We really need to thank that guy. And he might be sinning? Sure. Or even if you donate $2 to the homeless guy on the street corner, you could be sinning. If your goal is to build yourself up, if your goal is not to make much of God, if your goal is not to glorify Jesus, if your goal is to assuage some fear that you have. Or justify yourself. Or justify yourself, to love or trust in yourself more than you love or trust in God, then it's sin. Which the circle is getting wider and wider at this point because I think now, hopefully by now, it's as clear to the listener as it is to at least me in my own heart right now 
that I can't think of anything I've ever done in my whole life that's been done purely for God-honoring, selfless motives. Well, now, I hope you realize that for those of us who are heavily invested in the minimization of sin, we've worked We're pretty doing hard the opposite. at it, and we yeah. have gotten pretty good at it, actually. Um, this is, what you're saying is very threatening, is almost scary. Yes. Paul yeah. says in Romans 14, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Yeah. That's his definition. Yeah. Or we could say sin is whatever does not proceed from faith. Yeah. So it seems like faith is the critical pivot point. And now suddenly, correct me if I'm wrong, we've really divided our two groups from before. Christians are Christians because they have faith. And without faith, they can't be Christians, correct? Yes, that's right. Yep. Faith, non- in, faith in Jesus. Non-Christians, by definition, don't have faith. So they don't have faith in Jesus, yeah. They don't have faith in Jesus, yes. So that sounds like you're saying that everything they do, according to Romans 14, everything is sin. Yeah, well, so and Christians too, though. Christians too. I there's uh it's it's not as simple as saying, well, so so in Romans 14, the question is for it's it's it's, it's a specifically Christian question. Can you eat meat that's been offered to idols or not? That's the question in Romans 14. And I'm not sure how far this afield this is going to take us. So uh, Rainy Be careful, it could yeah. take us far afield. Yes. So the question in Romans 14 is, are Christians allowed to eat meat offered to idols? I think are, are related, so we don't have uh, t- temples. We don't have pagan temples in, in my town. Maybe uh, in your town you do. Uh, in my town we don't. Uh, so how does this relate to what we're to our lives that we live in? I, f- f- this might not this might not be the appropriate uh, analogy for everybody, but I do think that I have I have conversations with Christians about should I shop at a store that supports things that I think are not Christian? Should I shop at Target if I think they don't support Christian things? I think this is a good analogy. Should a Christian shop at Target or not? And what Paul says in Romans fourteen is. Is if it bugs your conscience, conscience to, to if it bugs your conscience to go to the pagan temple and buy the meat because you're like it was offered to idols and demons and I just I, I it just makes me feel weird and I think it might be wrong. Then Paul says, do not do it. Do not violate your conscience. If you can go there and be like it's just meat, big deal, and you can buy the meat and come home and you don't cause any of your fellow Christians to sin. By violating their conscience to say, hey, it's not a big deal. And they're like, well, I think it is kind of a big deal, but Joe Christian who bought the meat, you know, he's really kind of a solid guy. He must be right. I think it might be wrong, but I'm just going to do it anyway. That would be causing them to sin. If you can go there and buy the meat and eat it by yourself and not cause anybody else to sin, and you can do it in faith, knowing that God invented meat, and so there's nothing wrong with it, then go ahead and do it. And I would say the same thing about shopping at Target. If you can shop at Target and be like, it's a good gift. I don't agree with everything about this store, but they've got stuff here and there's a deal I want to get and I'm fine, then do it. If you can't, if you walk in Target and think, I should not be here, I should not be supporting this place, then don't do it. Anyway, to circle back to our original conversation, what does this have to do with faith? I think what Paul is saying there is, if you do something that violates your conscience, it is a sin, even if it's not technically wrong. It might not actually literally 
be a moral sin in God's eyes to shop at Target or eat meat from a pagan temple. But if you think it might be and you do it anyway, then it is sin. And so I think that's what he means by whatever is not from faith is sin. But, but I think, so, so for us too, though, if, if, if you can't, if the things that you are doing as a Christian can't be done in complete confidence that it is within God's will, then you shouldn't be doing it. If it can be done with complete confidence that I, I can do this for God's glory, I can do this in the name of Jesus, then you can go ahead and do it. However, I think your larger point is good, although I don't think Romans 14 specifically addresses it. I do think that Christians who believe in Jesus, I think that much of what they do, much of what Christians do, is accepted by God for the sake of Jesus Christ. But still, as a Christian, I'm a Christian, but as a Christian, I don't ever do anything that's 100% in that category, that's 100% pure. That's, you know, even the good, like I, I, I've, t- I've probably said this on the podcast before, I've said it to my congregation several times, that I, I have never, I can't in recent memory remember a sermon that I've preached where at some point during the sermon, even as I'm talking, I'm praying and asking God to forgive me for trying to be too important or trying to sound too smart or trying to be funny or trying to like be the kind of person that like my congregation would be like, oh, he's so amazing. He really helps me in my walk with Jesus. I try to aggrandize myself and my own sermons. I'm trying, you know, preaching a sermon, how much more righteous can you get than that? And yet it still is completely filled up with my sin. And I, I think you're totally right. You know, our impetus as humans is to minimize our own sin. But I think that once you start digging into A, God's word, be your own psyche, you'll find that that fence around your sin life gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's not much part, there's not many parts of our life, Christian or non-Christian, that aren't affected by our own rebellion against God. So the secular person who is listening to us who doesn't identify as a Christian, um, let's talk about abortion for a second. Deeply divisive subject. Sure. People who are Christians, many people who are Christians believe that abortion is a sin. Right. And it shouldn't be done. And then there are people who, I guess there are probably some Christians, and there are non-Christians who think that it's not a sin. They think that the thing to defend is the woman's right to do what with her body whatever she wants to do. Right. Um, did you just say that the Christian, if this violates his or her conscience should not get the abortion, but the person who's okay with it, uh, whose conscience doesn't compel them not to get the abortion is okay with God? No, because I, so we, 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 it's, it's hard to say everything all at the same time. Our conscience should be informed by Scripture, uh, by the character of God. And what Scripture makes clear is what scripture makes clear is that God loves life. God loves the life of women and God loves the life of the unborn. And what we've done, and I, I'm desperately trying to get us off on rabbit trails today. What we've done is we've turned. So see, see, this is a good, this is actually good. Okay. So what is sin? This is, this is an excellent example. Sin is violating God's will. That's what a Christian would say. 
In our culture, though, the greatest sin that you can commit is taking away somebody's self-determination, to, to violate somebody else's self-sovereignty, to take away somebody's rights. That's the biggest sin that you can commit. And so you can see why for the pro-abortion uh, group, taking away a woman's right is evil and wrong. Where for the anti-abortion group, taking away the life of an unborn child was also violating that baby's. And you, you see this played out a lot in the, in the rhetoric, you know, women should have a right to choose. One side says, and the other side says, well, the baby doesn't get a right to choose uh, that side. And so what they're both saying is, is that the ultimate value upon which the question of abortion rights should be decided is the question of human rights. Because both sides, right and left, agree that human self-sovereignty is the highest value. And so what you have is, is you have pro-life people butting heads with pro-choice people, or I think they actually prefer to be called pro-abortion people at this point, pro-abortion people and anti-abortion people butting heads with each other over the question of rights. And there's, there's no way you can make headway there. Who has the rights? That's just, a, that's, that, that's, uh, that's it's an impasse. dead man zone, you know? And instead, what I think that we need to do is stop thinking about morality and sin in terms of our culture's passion for human self-sovereignty and individualism and start thinking about it in terms of what does the Bible say about God's love for life and God's call that all humans should be responsible for all other humans, that, that we are responsible to take care of our neighbor and uh, to, to, to love God and to take care of our neighbor. And when you see it in that light, I think that it reframes. I, I, I it reframes the conversation biblically in this way. I, I think. I think we have a right. And, and again, you know, you brought up abortion, so we're going to roll with it. But I hope you, you, you know this. I'm sure I know this. Is that once we start talking about abortion, that's all anybody else can hear. So this has now become an abortion conversation. And so we, we might have some work to drag it back to sin in general. I think that we can say biblically that, and, and I think that even up until recently, even pro-choice people would agree with this, is that it's wrong to kill the unborn. It's wrong. Now, I think a lot of pro-choice people up until recently would say, but there are greater wrongs that are happening that have to be protected. And so there's a, a weight here. I now we're at a place where I think a lot of pro-abortion people are actually celebrating it. You know, it used to be make it safe, legal, and rare. That used to be the, the, the mantra. And, and behind that was the notion that it's bad, it's not good, but sometimes it's it's just necessary. And But, but I, I think that it's, it's safe to say biblically that it's always wrong to take life anywhere. It's also wrong, I think that uh, we're talking about abortion now, I, I we're drifting away. We're drifting away, Chuck. It's hard to talk about sin without talking about some kind of sin. Specific sin, you're right. I, I do think that what our culture has done, so, so one of the biggest reasons why women have abortions is because of money, because it is so massively expensive to have a baby. And I'm not just talking about the doctor's bills, although that's the case. I'm also talking about the expense to raise children. Even baby formula, it's it's worth its weight in gold right now in our culture. Uh, just the cost of like raising a child. We need as Christians and as a culture, we need to do our dangness to make sure that we put women in a position where it's financially feasible for them to have child for, for them to have children. And we haven't. 
And so I think we need to be sensitive to this because that also is immoral. Um, uh, I think that, well, this is a larger conversation. I think that the way that people of lower incomes, um, I think that the way that the healthcare industry marginalizes them and puts them in positions where they can't get good health care is also immoral. And I think that we need to take that in account too. But all that to say this, back to the main point, which is behind all of that, I hope, is the notion that God gets to decide, that God says we have a right, we have a responsibility as human beings to care for women and the unborn and everybody else. And that the question isn't one of human rights. Because if it is a question of human rights, then the ultimate sin is going to be taking other people's human rights. But as John Locke noted, uh, what is it, three or 400 years ago, that's a very complicated thing. You can say, you know, my rights extend as far as your nose, you know, and I can swing my fist as much as I want. What if we're all swinging our fists and our fists are bumping into each other? It's a very complex thing. I think it's better to say, no, don't think about sin and morality in terms of human rights. Think about it in terms of loving responsibility. Think about it in terms of vocation, honoring God and loving and serving your neighbor. And I think it's a better way to think of it. So let's take this complicated question and complicate it even a little bit further. Uh, most of us think of sin as some kind of disobedient act, right? doing something wrong. The man who cheats on his wife has committed adultery. Yeah. Non-Christians, Christians, just about everybody thinks that's, that's not a good thing, that that's, that's bad, maybe even a sin. But in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, which is the sixth yeah. commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery, or we might say has already sinned with her in his heart. Yeah. So for those of us who are in the minimization uh, crowd, Somebody says, you've never committed adultery, have you? So, no, no. Never, ever done that act. But have you ever thought about a woman in a lustful way? Well, now you're meddling. You know, it's end of conversation. Right. Because then the minimization starts heading in the direction of maximization. Right. Are we in the maximization business? Should we oh, be yeah. trying to... Because it's just about everybody. Right, We're yeah. all in the business of yeah. trying to make our sins as small as possible. Right. But God doesn't see him that way. And I yeah. don't think he approves of our efforts to to take our wrongdoing, our lawlessness or whatever, and make the least of it. Yeah. Should we be making the most of it? Oh, for sure. So in my, oh, church, for sure. in my, in my church tradition, we talk about law and gospel. And what we mean by law is what, what you're calling maximizing, is pointing out that none of us, that, that all of us, it's not just good enough to not disobey God's laws. It's also required that we love and serve our neighbors. And if you go if you go to Luther's small catechism to beat the Luther drum one more time, you'll find out that in his explanation of the commandments, you know, he'll say that uh, you know it's 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 wrong to commit adultery. We should fear and love God so that we do not uh, you know harm our neighbors in terms of murder, so that we lead sexually uh, pure lives in terms of adultery but also that we love and cherish our spouses, also that we do good to our neighbor to protect his possessions and income. In terms, it's, not, it's not good enough to not steal and be like, well, I haven't stolen. But we also are called to protect our neighbor's possessions. And there's a good thing. We're also called to be doing good. It's not enough to just not be doing you know, overt bad. In fact, uh, James says in his, in his epistle, James says, 
To, to the one who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to that person, that is sin, he says. To, to know to do good but not do it. So this is maximizing. And what we're saying is, is that Christians and non-Christians alike, we're all in the same boat. We all sin all the time. You know, it's like you, you walk into the doctor's office and you're like, doctor, I've got this pain in my lower back. And um, I, do you think I ought to go to physical therapy or something? And the doctor does some tests and she comes back and she says, actually, you've got stage four cancer. That's actually the position that we're in. We think our problems are minimal. You know, I just, you know, I, I kind of mess up every once in a while. Kind of what you said in the intro, you know, I, I, I botch things up every once in a while. I might lose my temper every once in a while. But actually, when you, when you go and you go and you see the surgeon, you open up the Bible and he starts prodding around in your psyche, what you'll see is that we have stage four cancer. And so it's Tim Keller, the, the Presbyterian pastor, likes to say, uh, you know, the, 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 the message of the Bible is, is that your problem is far worse than you thought it was. You know, the sin is so pervasive and it's so damaging. But the good news of the Bible is, is that God's grace is so much greater than you ever imagined it could be, that he loves to forgive sin. He is absolutely passionate. It gives him deep delight. Lots of times people think about, oh, so Christians, you know, they think people are sinners and that God hates them and you're judging them. Actually, God's favorite thing to do is to forgive sin. He absolutely loves it. And so when we talk about, you know, Christians, non-Christians being sinful, what we're saying is, is that you're a great candidate to experience the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He loves to forgive and get rid of sins. So this famous quote by Luther that I just absolutely love, and I, I tell myself this all the time. Luther said, whenever the devil comes and tells me that I'm a horrible sinner, he gives me immeasurable comfort because what? I know... Because he says, I know that Christ died to save sinners. And so whenever we say you're a sinner, it, that, that's just a prelude to the message that Jesus loves you so much and he's so excited about forgiving your sins and getting rid of them and making them all right here and now and in the future, completely healing you from them so they no longer affect you. So are you saying that the understanding the magnitude of the work of Christ in death and resurrection the enormity of that yes. is probably not perceptible until you get a good handle a on the magnitude of how sinful we really are. That's a great way to say it. And, and so, so like you pointed out earlier, so when Christians and non-Christians alike minimize our sins, we you minimize the problem and then you minimize the solution. So what do we need? We need self-help, you know. I just need to I just need to try harder when I work out, you know. Or I, I just I'll just be nicer to people. So we minimize the solution. But once you see that the problem is so massive, and then you see that actually what we need is a massive solution, and then all of a sudden, God is getting glory. That The cross of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb becomes so magnificent. It becomes so important in human history and in my individual life history that um, it, 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 he ends up getting glory, which is what he wants. My last question, we've gone a little bit long here, but my last question is, I can imagine that somebody is listening to us who has heard this conversation and is really discouraged by it. They have heard that their minimization of their own sin is counterproductive and they need to think about how to see themselves as a sinner. And I can see somebody on the other side of the fence who has heard this and it's been very encouraging. So how do we encourage the discouraged? 
I would just say this is like, I know that there's, I've, I've actually worked with people and tried to serve people who do this. They've got a, they've got a physical problem and they're scared of something bad and they don't want to get it, get checked out. They just want to pretend like it's not there. And so they don't go and they don't go. And this is what happens. Is, I didn't minister to Steve Jobs, but it's what happened to him. He had brain cancer. And he just didn't get it taken care of because he was just put it off, put it off. And then by the time you're like, this is too serious, I've got to go get this checked out, it's too late. And I would just say there's something scary about going to the good physician and saying, hey, what's wrong with me? And he's going to say, I'm just telling you, he's going to say something horrible and bad. But the good news is, is that he can cure any disease. As long as you don't go, you're going to die. That cancer is going to kill you. Sin is going to eat you from the inside out. It's going to take away your humanity. It's going to leave you with nothing but a walking lump of lust or greed or grumbling or bitterness or loneliness. If you go to Jesus and you're like, I know this is hard. I, I, I don't want to hear the bad news. But you sit there and you listen to the bad news of the law. He guaranteed he's going to give you the good news of the gospel. And the gospel is going to fix it. Jesus's blood is powerful enough to fix any problem, but you just got to go to him. You got to go to the doctor first if you're going to get it fixed. Tough uh, question, complicated issues. Yeah, thank you, Aaron, for your insight today. You've been listening to Craving Answers, Craving God with Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. You can post questions at the bottom of our episode page. Again, that's cacg.stjamesglencarbon.org. Share your questions and comments with us. We'll try to provide some answers on a future Craving Answers, Craving God.